I titled this message, Guarding the Deposit. Okay? The reason for that is one of the last verses that we're going to get to. This is what Paul is instructing Timothy to guard the deposit that was entrusted to him as the bishop in Ephesus or the pastor in Ephesus, okay? But this has much more far-reaching implications even to us as Christians, amen, that we need to guard the deposit in us. And there are several things in this text that leads me to believe that we have a cooperation in our sanctification. Can you get, can I get an amen? Because sanctification is a process, right? I, I, I got saved, right? I'm, I'm saved, but I'm also being saved, and I will be saved one of these days, right? It'll all come to completion. So I got sanctified before God, but my sanctification is totally not complete. I'm walking through sanctification for the rest of my life. And one of these days, I will be completely sanctified. Amen? Amen. And that's when I go to heaven, right? So in this, we understand that salvation is the work of God. But he has a work in sanctification for us to do. Amen? And that's called obedience. Amen? Amen. Growing in grace. Paul, Paul puts it that way, right? So sanctification, I have my part in that. Amen? Why? Why do I have my part in sanctification and not salvation? Well, first of all, salvation is absolutely free. I couldn't earn it if I wanted to. I don't deserve it even if I think I do. Amen? So the last thing that we understand is sanctification has my part because I have to take the steps that I see written in his word. And I'm going to try very hard to say, you know what, to not say, you know what I mean. <laughs> I heard Mike. I heard, I got, like, my, my ear went over there. I heard Mike over there making fun of me for saying, you know what I mean. I do say, you know what I mean, a lot, okay? I really try not to, but it happens. But sanctification has my part to play in it. And the reason is because as the Holy Spirit is molding me and shaping me, God uses circumstances to change uh, me, to mold me and shape me into the image of Christ. I literally have to still take those steps. I still have to make the appropriate steps in the sanctification process. Amen. So it's still the Holy Spirit enabling me to do it, but it is me physically taking the step necessary. It's just like if I, if I really, really want to stop saying, you know what I mean. I have to make a conscious effort to stop doing it. <laughs> Amen? So any other thing that we're struggling with is the, same, is the same principle. The same principle applies even though I know what I should be doing a lot of the time if I'm not making a conscious effort to do that I won't do it I'll do the thing I'm not supposed to do right this is the war this is the warring in the members that Paul dealt with amen so we've got to understand that we have our part to play in sanctification but getting back on topic we're starting the uh, second book of Timothy. This is the second letter that Paul wrote. Paul is the author. Timothy is the recipient. I want to give you a time frame. This letter, most scholars agree, was written between 64 and 68 AD during Paul's second imprisonment in Rome. Now Paul's first imprisonment of Rome, we can go back and read in Philippians where he had an expectation of being released and going to see them in Philippi. He, he, he even wrote, when he wrote to them, he said, I am anxious to be released to come and see you, you know. So Paul had an expectation of his first imprisonment of being released. When we get to 2 Timothy, which is probably Paul's last letter, we see the tone of Paul's letter change dramatically even ends this letter with, I am about to be poured out. 
life a drink offering. I've kept, I've run a good race, fought a good fight, I've kept the faith, all those things, right? We understand this being what Paul's last uh, letter to Timothy, his protege, his son in the faith. He's not going to waste time with things that aren't important, okay? You got to think of this like Paul is writing Timothy and urging, even telling Timothy, look, I'm sending somebody to replace you in Ephesus because I want you to come and see me before this is over, right? So Paul writing this letter as being very, uh, uh, you see his emotion at the very beginning of the letter. You see Paul's heart and his love for Timothy at the very beginning of the letter. And then you also see Paul's longing that Timothy gets everything straight that he's ever taught him so that when Paul's gone, he knows that Timothy is going to be doing the right things. Amen? So this is kind of the background of this letter. Now, Warren Wiersbe breaks up this uh, chapter in three separate parts. He outlines 1 Timothy chapter 1 this way. Uh, he, he titles it the pastoral appeal. He, the first one he titles is courageous enthusiasm, verse 1 through 7, shameless suffering, verse 8 through 12, spiritual loyalty from verse 13 to verse 18. I thought that was kind of a nice way to break it up in your mind if you wanted to look at it that way because you can see where Paul uh, is encouraging uh, Timothy to be courageous in his enthusiasm, shameless in suffering for Christ. Don't be ashamed of Christ or the gospel of Christ or of me, his prisoner, but share in the sufferings and then spiritual loyalty that he ends with in this chapter. And you can write that down if you want to. But the ESD, uh, the ESD study Bible titles this entire chapter, Guard the Deposit Entrusted to You. This whole chapter, that's how it's titled in my Bible, is Guard the Deposit Entrusted to You. And that's kind of why I chose the title because after reading it, this is Paul's whole message of the first chapter is getting you to understand, first of all, that there are things in my life, he said, stir up the gift of God that's inside of you, okay? That's in this chapter. We'll read it in just a second. So that's part of my sanctification process. You see this? There's something, some graces and gifts that the Holy Spirit gives you that you have to exercise, that you have to work out, that you have to... What's the point of exercise? To get fit, to become stronger or faster or build up endurance. Amen? That's the whole point of exercise or... Amen? So when we understand that when God gives me a gift, it's not just for me to sit on it. It's for me to use it, to exercise it, to work it out. Amen? So let's read this first chapter together. I'm going to start at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this, re for this reason, I remind you to fan the flame, the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God, gives a, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and of self-control. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us 
to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the age began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what I have entrusted, what he has been entrusted, what has been entrusted to me, excuse me, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within you, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia have turned away from me, who are Philegria and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he has rendered at Ephesus. Let us pray. Father God, I just ask that you would bless the reading of your word. I pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that could receive this message today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Now, I want to go uh, into a few details on the first few verses here. It starts off just very similar to 1 Timothy in that Paul is making an appeal to Timothy on who he is. Paul, an apostle. Right? What does he say? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Now, I want to make a contrast here. If you go read 1 Timothy 1 and 1, Paul says, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. So in one sense, Paul is saying, I'm an apostle by the command of God. And in this case, he's saying, I am an apostle by the will of God. I don't know that we can separate those two. Amen. Can you separate the will of God from the word of God or command? Command and the same difference, amen? By his instruction, by his word, by his command, amen? Paul's making this appeal because most Judaizers tried to say that Paul was not an apostle. Most Judaizers tried to recant Paul's apostleship. Even though Peter and James and Mark and all of the other apostles accepted Paul as an apostle. Peter never once even speaks badly of Paul, even though Paul withstood Peter to his face. Amen? So we got to understand that Paul, his apostleship was not like that of Peter and James and John, where he actually walked with Christ, but his apostleship was exactly like theirs, that he had seen the risen Christ, that he had met and had an encounter with the risen Christ. And people will say, well, but that, that means some of us can be apostles today. I wouldn't say that. Paul didn't just meet Christ in his heart. Paul didn't just come and pray a sinner's prayer. Paul met Jesus face to face on the road to Damascus. Light from heaven shone, knocked him off his horse. Who art thou? He didn't hear it with his spirit. He didn't hear it with his heart. He didn't hear it inside him. It was a voice outside him that spoke, and everyone around him heard the voice. Amen. 
So, unless that happened to you, I doubt that you could be an apostle. <laughs> Amen? Come on, let's get real. We're, we're talking about the word and what the word says about apostleship. Amen. We went through this as a church. Amen. What what Peter and uh, all the other 11 did when they wanted to replace Judas. They said, we need a man that walked with us, what, three years the whole time Jesus ministered, right? From the baptism of John until the resurrection and until now, right? That was one of the requirements. And the other one was that he had seen or witnessed that resurrected Christ. Amen? So we got to understand that Paul was one born out of an untimely lineage, but not that it would say that everybody else can be one now. Amen? Matter of fact, in church history, you don't see the lineage of an apostle going beyond the twelve and Paul. As a matter of fact, no one even called themselves apostles after that. They were bishops or overseers, pastors. That's the words that were used from roughly 90 A.D. until 500 A.D. when they tried to start saying that the office of an apostle was back. Okay? It doesn't work that way. We can't, just, we can't just take that office and what Peter and all them said, this is what an apostle is, and say, well, that doesn't matter. Amen? No, an apostle had to physically walk and know Jesus Christ. The only way Paul could have been an apostle was that he physically met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And we see him addressing him. Who art thou, Lord? Right? I am Jesus, whom thou persecuted. Right? Come on. Let's talk real talk. I don't, I don't want none of this fake, uh, flaky Christianity that does is not based on the Bible. I want solid biblical teaching. Right? So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to disseminate from people's ideas, you sure wouldn't it be great for me? I want to be an apostle. I want to be called Apostle Kevin O'Connor. It'd be great. Tough. It doesn't work that way. I don't get to decide that anyway. Amen? I don't just get to wake up one day and say, I'm an apostle. I don't get to just wake up one day and somebody say, I think you're an apostle. It doesn't work that way. Amen? Paul didn't just start ministering and then become an apostle. He was an apostle from the very moment he was called. Okay? He didn't just he didn't, note that he didn't even go ask if he could start preaching. He just started preaching and then three years later went to Peter and James and all of them and was like, hey, this is the gospel I'm preaching. Is it right? And they're like, yep, sounds good. Keep going. That's what happened. Paul visits them three years after he meets Christ. Stays with them and then goes out and preaches for another 13 years, comes back, checks in with them again. Y'all can read the Bible. You, it's in the Bible. You can read it. Amen? Paul didn't ask. He just started preaching. Why? Because they didn't call him. Jesus called him. Now, I will say this. When Paul did go back the first time, they all laid hands on Paul. And they all confirmed Paul and Barnabas and sent Paul and Barnabas out to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. So at this point, we have God confirming Paul and the church confirming Paul. Everybody else can sit down. <laughs> Amen? That's the way it ought to work. Amen? That's how ordination works in the church. I remember I got a call from somebody one time. And they said, uh, Pastor, if you ever need any help at the church, you just call me because I just got ordained online. You think I'm joking. This really happened, okay? Somebody really called me and told me that. I said, you realize that getting ordained online is not 
really ordination, right? Well, what do you mean? And then I had to walk through what biblical ordination looks like. Biblical ordination is this. You go to a church and you serve there. And people know you. They know your flaws. They know your faults. They know where you're at in your walk with Christ. They know where you're at in your understanding of biblical things. And then when they see the gift of God in you, like Peter and James and John and all those, Saul and Paul, then that church, that body, that presbyter, if you want to call it that, a presbyter is this, a group of elders. That's what a presbyter is, okay? That's what a presbytery is. It's a group of elders in a church that say, we see the gift of God in you, and we're going to lay hands on you and confirm that we see this gift of God, this call of God on your life, and now we're ordaining you to go out into ministry. That's what ordination is, okay? That could never be done online. They don't know you. They don't know your life. They don't know. They, you could be, I'm not even going to say it. You could be the biggest heretic living the most sinful life on the planet and sign up and get one, okay? So I'm sorry if I don't accept that ordination, okay? That's, that's not biblical. It's not the way it works, amen? We see here Paul confirming his apostleship when he's writing this letter, and he's just reminding Timothy. Not only, I think it's interesting, first he says by the uh, command of God, and this time he says by the will of God. Uh, the first time he says uh, by Christ Jesus our hope. This time he says by uh, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. I just like Paul always does an introduction, and he does it very well most of the time, you know. He's uh, very educated. You can tell that. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. Timothy, First uh, Timothy, was by the command of God, here by the will of God, reinforcing Paul's apostleship from God's will and not man's will or even Paul's own will because Paul was not looking to be an apostle. Matter of fact, Paul was looking to destroy the church. Amen? He was, he was on his way to Damascus. And I love how the King James says it, okay? It says, Paul, yet breathing murderous threats against the church, Ask for papers to go to Damascus to arrest any of those found in the way. Let me tell you, Christians, Jesus is the way, and if you're in the way, you're in the way. <laughs> Amen? Amen? Being in the way oftentimes puts you in the way, if you catch my meaning. For Paul truly was an enemy of Christ and his church before his encounter with the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. I just, when I hear Paul talking about his calling, every time I hear him say, Paul, the apostle of God, by the will of God, I'm thinking, yeah, it was the will of God. Paul wasn't looking for Jesus, was he? Paul was looking to kill people who believed in Jesus. And all of a sudden, Against, uh-oh, should I preach it this way? Against his own will, he met this man named Jesus on the road to Damascus, and everything changed. Listen to me. No one ever comes to Christ on their own free will. Because they're enemies of God. They are not looking for God. Matter of fact, they're trying to do everything they can to avoid God. The idea that somehow my sinful, dead nature is crying out to God is insanity when you read the scriptures. Paul is very clear that we were dead in trespasses and sin. We were enemies of God. We did not seek God. Romans 3, there's none that looks, does righteousness. No one seeks after God. No one does good, right? 
So if we realize that, we've got to understand that God is giving me a new desire in the born-again experience because my desire beforehand was not for him. <laughs> it wasn't. I promise you, my desire was not for God. It was for whatever my flesh wanted. That's what it was for. You have a free will, and it freely chooses to sin all the time. <laughs> let's go. Let's go a little farther into this. Once again, Paul speaks, verse 2. Paul speaks of his great affection towards Timothy, who Paul has adopted as his own son in the faith. Paul knew Timothy's mother and grandmother, apparently, and was either directly or indirectly involved in Timothy's salvation. Okay? Now, we went through this when we read 1 Timothy. We understood that in Acts 16, we see Timothy being first mentioned here as an, a, a disciple. And then we get the backstory here in 1 and 2 Timothy where we learn that Timothy's mother and his grandmother trained Timothy in the scriptures. We get to that in chapter 3 of this letter. Amen. Says He says that you have known the scriptures since you were a youth that are able to make you wise unto salvation. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, training, rebuking, correcting. Right? Remember that verse? That's in chapter 3. Amen? All of these things, Paul has been, first of all, Paul went to Lystra, where Timothy was raised, preached the gospel. And obviously, the grandmother became uh, a believer first, and then Timothy's mother, and then Timothy. Amen? That's what he says, right? Know what he says in this? He says, the faith, uh, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you. Wouldn't that be a great inheritance? Wouldn't it be great, Ruth, for someone to look at you and go, I know that you have faith in you. I knew your mom and your grandma, how they all had faith. Or let's turn the tables around. Now you're grandma and you've got grandkids. I, don't want, I know you don't want to think that far. I know you want to think that far about grandkids and all. But just think about this. What if one day your grandchildren get saved? And somebody says, man, that's a real Christian family there. And I knew her grandma had faith. I knew her, her daughter had And now she's got faith. Amen? What a legacy to have. Amen? That's what I'm saying. And it kind of happened that way at my house. My grandma got saved and a lot of other people got saved later on. Give you a staggering statistic. If we had more men in this church, more families would be saved. Because you realize that if the father gets saved... There's a 90% chance, over a 90% chance that the rest of the household comes to faith. When you get to mothers, it drops to 60%. When you get to children, virtually no chance. When a child comes to faith and the parents are not believers, there's virtually a 30% chance that those parents will get reached. Staggering statistics, ain't it? Makes us really want to reach the people of our generation and not just the kids. Amen. I want people, I want kids too, okay? But we want families. It's about families. Amen. Let's go. Let's keep going. Again, Paul's greeting is done in, in and towards Timothy in grace mercy and peace. Now, 1 Timothy is the first time we've seen Paul use grace, mercy, and peace. Uh, before it was grace and peace, but 
Uh, I loved how Matthew Henry said, for preachers of the gospel, we might need mercy mixed in with grace and peace because of all the things that go into preaching the gospel. Amen? The responsibility that goes into it. So Paul greeting Timothy in grace, mercy, and peace as he's extending from God the Father. We realize that Paul isn't giving him anything, right? This is Paul saying, you're already, because of Christ, grace, mercy, peace be unto you. Amen? We don't establish anybody's peace in their life. Only God does that. We don't establish grace in anybody's life. God does that. Amen? So we need to we need to get out of the habit of thinking when I if I, if I just say, Mike, I'm, I'm giving you grace and mercy and peace. Am I giving it? No, it's already been given. Amen. Christ gives those things. Paul is reminding him. And he's greeting him with grace, mercy, and peace. Amen. Uh, lastly, in this, I love that even in this letter we see instead of if you go back and do a little study outside of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, if you go to the other letters that Paul wrote, he always wrote Jesus Christ, not Christ Jesus. And it's funny that he does that to uh, Timothy and Titus. Why is he doing it? First of all, Timothy was half Jewish, right? We, just, we established that his father was a Greek, his mother was a Jew, right? So he's coming to him on level playing ground, reminding him who Messiah is, okay? That's what the word Christ means, is the Greek word for Messiah, okay? So when he's saying Christ Jesus, he's saying Messiah, Yeshua, amen? Let's understand that. That was, a, that was a neat little tidbit that was thrown in there because you realize Paul writing to the Romans, he would not emphasize Jesus' messianic standing, okay? That didn't mean anything to the Roman people. You know what I mean? Well, what's this Messiah stuff? We don't know anything about that. You have to explain to us first, right? That's why he went in and explained them the Rome, explained to the Romans the gospel so that they would know who they believed in. Amen? Let's understand that Timothy already knew. Amen? All right, let's go on. As in most of Paul's letters, exceptions being Galatians, 1 Timothy, and Titus, Paul follows his salutation with a section of giving thanks to God for the recipients of the letter. He focuses here on his relationship with Timothy and his confidence in Timothy's faith. Faith, excuse me. So he greets him in verse 1 and 2, and then he begins his thanks in verse 3. He says, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. Now, I want to stop right here. This is not in my notes. And it's not on the board, so don't look for it. It's not up there. But this is very interesting to me why Paul says that I served God with a clear conscience just like my ancestors did. Paul understood that even when he was an enemy of Christ, he wasn't breaking the law. You understand? Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, so his conscience was clear in the fact that he was following what his faith dictated beforehand. He knew God, he just didn't know Messiah, right? Let's understand, he knew the Torah, the Word of God, the Law of God, he knew it. Amen? So his conscience was clear in that, okay? And even the people of Israel who were serving God, they were doing it with clear consciences for the most part. Understand. The Pharisees and scribes, Jesus surely rebuked them, right? We've got plenty of record of him doing that. But also understand that he didn't go around rebuking everybody for sacrifices, for doing this. Matter of fact, he healed people and he said, hey, don't tell nobody that I did this. 
go to the temple, give the sacrifice that Moses demanded. Right? Jesus didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. Amen? So Paul, realizing that him living like a Jew was not something that had to be ashamed of, amen, realized that he was serving God with a clear conscience. Now watch this. I remind you constantly, I am reminded, I remember you, excuse me, constantly in my prayers. And this is where I wanted to draw a little bit of a distinction between our lives nowadays and their life then. Paul said, I remember your tears, right? He said, I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. Church, if I asked, if we did a poll and asked every Christian, do you pray in the morning? Do you pray at night? First of all, I don't know how many we'd get to answer the first one. I don't know how many I'd get to answer the second one. And I don't know how many, if any, I'd get to answer both. Okay? The reality is one of the greatest things that the church stopped doing, they need to start doing, and that's praying. Amen? We need to stop with this apathy that says, well, you know, uh, <laughs> even the most devout Calvinist that says they believe that God's in control of everything and sovereign over all things, which I agree with, God is sovereign. God is in control of all things, okay? Now, even those people... Still believe in prayer, okay? Don't let them fool you. They still pray, okay? So we need to stop acting like prayer is some kind of just secondary thing that's not really that important. Jesus prayed. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. The church is supposed to be a house of prayer, amen? So we need to get in the habit. And I preached uh, Sunday night. I think it was last Sunday night. That we need to be committed, devoted to prayer. Amen? Not just half-hearted about it. We need to make it, we need to make it part of our daily life to pray. Not out of a ritualistic sense that, oh, I'm obligated to pray, but out of a sense of I want to spend time with God. I want to tell, look, I'm worried and I know how to get this fixed where I'm not worried. I'm gonna go pray. Amen. I feel discouraged. I know how to get that fixed. I'm going to go pray. All these things are what we're supposed to be praying over. Amen? We're supposed to be praying about taking our petitions to God. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are laboring heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. But we all run around with our yokes, and we run around with our weights, and run around with our heavy burdens. And we start acting like God doesn't want them. And he's over there with open arms going, I'm waiting. All you got to do is pray. Man, we need to be people of prayer. He thanks God as he remembers Timothy constantly in prayer. Day and night. Or oh, it says night and day. I wrote it down backwards. Prayer, Paul's prayer life was constant. That's what I got out of this. Paul's prayer life was constant, night and day. Amen? We need that kind of development in our prayer life. And this is one of those things that we talked about at the beginning. Prayer is not something that God's going to do for you. Now, I know the Bible says, Pastor, that when we don't know how to pray or what to pray, the Spirit prays for us. That's true. But it doesn't say the Spirit's going to pray for you all the time. It doesn't say that the Spirit's going to pray about all the stuff that you should be praying about. It doesn't say that the Spirit is going to take over the prayer life where you don't have to do anything. That is not taught in Scripture. Prayer is something we should do. And it's one of those things that we have to take our step in. Amen? We have to open our mouth and pray. We have to determine, I'm going to be a person of prayer. We have to determine that. It's not just going to happen. You know how you make habits? you got to start a habit to make a habit, first of all, okay? 
You gotta start one to make one. that God gives us prayer for those very reasons. Prayer is supposed to build me up. Prayer is supposed to encourage me. Prayer is supposed, even if I don't get quote unquote what I want out of prayer, I'm going to get what I need when I pray. Do you understand? Paul, Jesus didn't teach his disciples, uh, give us today our daily wants. He said, give us today our daily bread or the thing that I need to, to, to survive today. Amen. Amen. That indicates that tomorrow I'm going to have to get up and I'm going to have to pray for what I need tomorrow. Amen. The indication in Jesus teaching us how to pray is that it's supposed to be every day. Give me today my daily bread. I can't live on yesterday's daily bread. I've got to have today's daily bread. Amen. So prayer is one of those gifts, one of those graces that can establish our walk with Christ. Reading the word of God is one other way of doing this. There's a reason that God told Israel, put it on the doorpost of your house. Make it frontlets to your eyelids, right? Put it on the uh, lamppost. Put it on the, i I got a friend, he writes Bible verses all over his wall at home. Why? Because he's reminding himself what God said. That's good stuff. We shouldn't throw that out. We should hold on to that practice of understanding, reading, reminding ourselves of what God's word says every day. Amen. Amen. Number two. Apparently their last parting caused Timothy some tears and illuminates Paul and his relationship because Paul longs to see Timothy. Listen to these words. I remember your tears. I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. First of all, the last time that Paul and him met, apparently, when Paul left him there in Ephesus, remember that? He said, the first, first letter says, I urge you to stay in Ephesus, right? That they must have actually seen each other face to face since then and Timothy was driven to tears understanding what Paul was going through and didn't want to leave Paul but he knew he had to stay there in Ephesus and do the work that he was there to do okay but it also shows that their relationship isn't just oh I'm the you know I'm the overseer of this area and you're the pastor it's, no, it's more than that it's more like a father and a son. It's more like a family. It's more like they really care for each other. Wouldn't it be great to have a church full of people that actually really care about each other? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't, it be, wouldn't that be a novel idea that people who meet in one building love each other, care about each other, and like spending time with each other? Amen. Wouldn't that be great? Man, I think we're on our way there. You don't come to dinner, I'm going to be calling you. Where are you at? What are you doing? I missed you. Amen? What it ought to be. Paul's relationship here with Timothy is very illuminated by these statements. Uh, third, here he remembers Timothy's sincere faith and how it was an inheritance taught to, taught to him by others of faith who taught him but now Timothy has the faith dwelling in him by the grace of God through regeneration. Timothy is now carrying that faith of his own volition. Amen? Being of use in the kingdom of God. This is very important for all of us to understand that when we talked about this legacy of having people, you know, mothers passing on their faith to their daughters or fathers passing it on to their, to their children, 
we, what we got to understand is it's not just something that's in name only. You understand what I'm saying? Well, I'm a Christian because my mom was a Christian. No, you're a Christian because you know Christ. And if you don't know Christ, you need to meet Christ. Because I don't care if your mom's a Christian. If it ain't in you, it'll be evident. Amen? Paul's saying here is I see that same faith in you. He didn't say because you're, you're mama. He said because it's in you. Amen? So we got to understand even that inheritance of faith that's passed down is the understanding of we're saved by faith in Christ alone. Amen? Not, I'm not saved because my mom believes. I'm not saved because my grandmother believes. I'm saved because I believe. Because God saved me. Amen? We need to understand that. Uh, but Paul here does talk to Timothy about that inheritance. He tells him, I've seen it in your, first in your grandmother, then in your mother, and now I know it's in you. Now this next two verses, verse 6 and 7, is going to be the culmination of this sermon for me today. And that's where I really was going with the whole thing. I love these two verses, and when you read them out of the King James, it sounds really poetic, sounds really great. Love it. King James, it says, stir up the gift of God that is in you, right? Stir up the gift of God. Now, when you understand this word stir up, I want you to get this, okay? It's like you had a fire, and it's all died down, okay? And, and you can see some smoke coming up out of the ashes. But if you'll take a poker... And you stick it in there and start stirring it up. All of a sudden, you'll see them coals come back red hot, come back to life. That's the kind of stirring that Paul's talking about. Stir up the gift of God that's in you. He's saying it's in there, but it's laying dormant. You're not using it. It's not burning like it was. It's not, it's not as bright as I saw it the last time when I saw you, Timothy. I want you to stir that gift up because... The last time I saw you, it kind of looked like you had had a wet towel thrown over you. Somebody put the damper on and the fire was going down. He's telling you, stir that up. Amen? Timothy, we understand, is a younger man, probably the youngest of the bishops that Paul uh, ordained. And Timothy, being a young man, was told several things by Paul. He said, let no one despise your youth. Remember that? He said, let no one despise your youth, but be an example in love and patience and all those things that he told him, right? He said, don't let anybody do that. And here he's saying, we're not, you're, don't be timid. Don't be fearful, Right? Notice the next verse. He says, he says, stir up the gift of God that was in you, which was given by the laying on of my hands. He said, for God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, the NIV says, okay? But of power and of love and of a sound mind or self-control, amen? So we got to understand that Timothy's natural tendency was probably to uh, not be as vocal about some things that he should have been vocal about. Maybe let some people get away with some stuff that Paul's like, hey, don't, don't. Why do you think Paul keeps telling him in every chapter of every letter, he's telling him, hey, say this about these false teachers. Don't let them teach this kind of stuff. Don't let them say this. Don't let them do that, right? He tells him all through 1st and 2nd Timothy, he's instructing him, don't let him do this. Do Stand up for this. Stand up for that, right? He's giving him instructions of what it means to be a pastor, a leader, and to run a church. Amen? You can't let people do whatever they want. He said, God ain't giving you no spirit of fear, but a power of love and a sound mind. Now, we get this confused with all kinds of other things, but I wanted to kind of uh, give you a 
background on this from my perspective. This then, Paul is speaking, first of all, of the grace or the gifts that uh, were conferred on Timothy at his ordination. Notice he said that don't stir up the gift of God that's in you, which was given you by the laying on of my hands. Right? Well, when did that happen? Well, when he was ordained, when the Paul and the presbyters laid hands on Timothy and conferred him for ministry, right? And whether you believe that there's a supernatural conference of some kind of uh, apostolic gift or grace, or you understand it to be a, a act of passing on authority, you understand that even if it was just the act of passing on authority, the very act means that Timothy is charged to be an authority and to use his office rightly. Amen? Now, even if it is extraordinary where we, where we see it as there was an a actual gift of the Spirit that's given to him, let's understand that Paul's telling him to stir this gift up. So even though it was a gift of the Spirit somehow, Timothy was still the one that had to exercise the gift. You understand this? Uh, here, Paul is reminding Timothy of his ordination and the, that was done by the presbyter with Paul confirming Timothy into service. Timothy is to stir this gift up. Literally, the word means to rekindle or to revive. And that's what you're doing when you have a fire that goes real low. I used to, we used to, we grew up in the country and had a wood stove, and I, I was the one that made fires all the time. Okay, I'd get it so hot in there, everybody run out of the house, it was so hot. But when you go to check the fire and that stove's really, really starting to get cool, you open that door, you can take that poker and you can start stirring those coals up. And you stir them up real good and you can just throw some more kindling on there and it'll light up just like that. And then you can put some more wood on it. So when you're talking about stirring this gift up, he's literally saying rekindle that gift. Meaning this gift, whatever it was that was given, was something that could be used up and needed to be built back up. You understand that? Why would he have to rekindle the gift if it wasn't dying down? Amen? So the rekindling or the reviving of this gift was something that was on Timothy's agenda to do. It was his responsibility to take care of that. And Christians, I'm telling you right now, it's in your realm of responsibility to stir up the gifts of God in you. Amen. Matthew Henry says this. He says, here, Paul exhorts him to stir up the gift of God that was in him. Stir This stirring it up as, as a fire under the embers. It is meant of all the gifts of graces of God that God has given him to qualify him for the work of an evangelist, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and the extraordinary gifts that were conferred by the imposition of the apostles' hands. So here, Matthew Henry is saying these gifts are not just the gifts that we have to have to be an elder or an overseer. You realize that there's qualifications, right? We talked about the qualifications of an elder, of a deacon, right? It's just not just those gifts that he needs. It's also the gifts of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit brings. We know those gifts, Romans 12, Romans 4, or 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14, you know, gifts of helps and tongues and all those gifts, right? He's telling us not just those gifts, but the extraordinary gifts. He's saying it's all the gifts of God here. He says, he says, it is meant of all the gifts and graces God had given him to qualify him for the work of an evangelist the gifts of the Holy Ghost, the extraordinary, extraordinary gifts that were conferred on him by the imposition of the apostles' hands. These he must stir up. He must exercise 
and so increase them, using gifts and having gifts. To him that hath shall be given more. Matthew 25 and 29. He must take all opportunities to use these gifts to stir them up, for that is the best way to increase them. Whether the gift is of God, whether the gift of God in Timothy was ordinary or extraordinary, though I incline to the latter, he must stir it up, otherwise it would decay. These are the words of the great Puritan writer from fifth. Uh, 17 whatever day he lived in, 1700s, okay? 1757 or something like that. Matthew Henry said, whether it's extraordinary or ordinary, he said, I'm inclined to believe it was extraordinary use. He said, whether it was ordinary or extraordinary, Timothy is charged to stir them up, lest they decay. Okay? That means... They're going to wither, or you're not going to be proficient in them. Amen? I hear all the time, well, I'm, I'm not ever good at talking to people about Jesus. Well, have you done it? You're never going to get good at anything you don't do, okay? That's just reality. You don't just wake up one day and you're good at everything, okay? Most of us who are not superhuman have to wake up every day and uh, uh, deliberately decide, I'm going to do that thing, okay? Now, there's some of us that try more things than others and find out we are definitely not MMA fighters, okay? So, you know, there's, there's certain things that you might not be good at, okay? But you're never going to know unless you try anyhow, okay? You're never going to become good at anything until you put it into practice. I'm not very good at praying. That just tells me you don't pray enough. <laughs> Prayer ain't something you're good at, okay? First of all, you just need to be comfortable doing it, okay? And the fact that you're uncomfortable means you don't do it. <laughs> I hate to be the bearer of bad news. I'm just, I'm just here to speak some truth, okay? You get mad at me all you want, but the reality is people who say, I just, you know, I'm, I, I don't know how to pray right. You just not, you don't understand that there's no right and wrong, you know, as far as how I'm saying or what I'm saying that's going to disqualify you from being heard by God, okay? There's only one thing that will disqualify you from being heard. Faith. Or the lack of. Okay? It's the only thing. Every prayer, doesn't matter how hillbilly, honky-tonk your voice sounds, God still loves you too, okay? And the, the only reason I know is because I still got some hillbilly in my voice and God still hears me, amen? It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you know a lot of Bible. Doesn't matter if you know a lot of fancy words. Peter prayed one of the shortest prayers ever. Lord, save me. That's it. That was the end of the prayer. That's all you got to do is put it into practice. Amen. I'm reminded of Matthew 25 where the farmer gave out talents. Gave one man one talent, gave another man five, gave another man ten. Remember that? And that master went away to a far land, and the man with uh, ten or five talents, you know, went and invested. The man with three went and invested. The man with one talent buried it because he was afraid. Right? That's what it says. Let's go there. Matthew 25 and 25. I want to read this so you get this in understanding this gift that Timothy is supposed to stir up, okay? This will shed new light on your understanding about this gift. Matthew 25 and 25, I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. What's the next thing the master says? But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. I ain't even going to read any farther. You don't have to read no farther. So when God gives you a gift and you don't use it, this is how God sees it. He sees you being wicked and slothful with the gift that he gave you. So if I'm not stirring it up, if I'm not using what he's given me, I'm being wicked and slothful in my service. 
They ought to challenge some people, okay? You don't have to be good at prayer, okay? I ain't good at fishing, but I tried. I gave up yet. I still go out every year, don't catch nothing, and keep going. One of these days, I'm going to catch a fish. I, I, I was so proud of myself two summers ago. I caught two, three little sunfish out there at the lake. And I mean little. should have seen my face. I'm a fisherman. Amen. Don't neglect that gift. Stir up that gift. Put it to use. My goodness. Prayer is the most underutilized thing in the church today. We, we love worship. We, you know, if I, if I got three bands here next week, we'd have this place packed out with people wanting to come and see these bands, okay? I could get people all over this room. But when you tell them, hey, we're going to pray every night at 6 o'clock. <laughs> what? Every night? I bet you if I told you I was going to have a band here every night at 6 o'clock, a lot of people show up for that. Which tells me that we're just more inclined to be entertained than we are to live our life for Christ. Amen? So we ought to be using the gifts that he's given us. Amen? Uh, let's keep going before I get lost here. I don't know what time it is. I don't want to go over Oh, I'm already over. <laughs> Oops. We'll just leave it right there. I'll finish this chapter next week. I'm going to close with this. We're going to close right here. We need to understand Paul's encouragement to Timothy is not because Timothy is just some unworthy pastor. But he's challenging Timothy not to let the fire die in his heart. He's challenging Timothy not to let the fire of doing the work of God die down, but to rekindle that gift. Now, I don't know any other way to say it than this, but our church, every church in our city needs that. Every one of our churches needs to rekindle the gift that is in us. Every one of our church needs a rekindling or a reviving or a revival. You understand the, 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 the similarities here? Rekindle, rekindle, revive. It's all about stirring up the gift of God that's already here. We're not waiting for some new thing. Mike, we're not waiting for something that ain't never showed up. We're waiting for the people of God Amen. to stir up the gift of God inside them, to rekindle that fire, to find their first love again, to do the first works. You understand? Notice also that it's not by our own power, because he tells us, you have not been given a spirit of fear, or of timidity, but of power. You want to know what that word fear there means? Literally, the literal cowardice. Cowards back up when the world says you got to do it this way. Cowards back up when they when they say, "Oh, that's not the way. That's not that's not the right way to do that." Or, that's not the way you should be doing that. Or you, you guys are just crazy Christian people. The cowards stop doing it. Just because somebody says, hey, that don't look right. Or it don't sound right. Or that word cowardice. And he's using the word cowardice to provoke a response in Timothy to understand the next part of what he said. He said, God has not given us a spirit of cowardice, but of power of love and of sound mind, self-control. Sound mind, self-control. Now I wrote a little note down here and I closed my notes too early. I wrote a little note down here about that. I wanted to read it to you. Timothy had a natural tendency 
to be timid. The first thing that I noticed is these gifts are spiritual and given by God. The Holy Spirit is the gift and the giver. And he gives us power that enables us to live what we preach. He gives us love that casts out all fear. And he gives us a sound mind that believes God's word and allows us to live self-controlled, upright lives in the face of opposition. And as a pastor, I need that. And as Christians, everybody needs that. Do you understand? We are not like those who back up and are destroyed. You understand? But we are those who persevere and are saved. You understand? Paul's giving him a lesson as a pastor saying, you're not going to be, there's going to be times in your ministry where you're going to have to take a stand. There's going to be times in your Christian walk where you cannot back up. You cannot back down. You cannot give in. You are going to meet those things. How do I know that? Because then he starts in, in the next few verses talking about his suffering. He said, don't be ashamed of the suffering of Christ. Don't be ashamed of my suffering. And that, it, it, matter of fact, join in the suffering. You see where he's going with this? We're going to get that next week. Joining in the suffering. Amen? Let's stand and pray.